We'll turn to Leviticus 18. Funny story about Leviticus 18. We were in a leadership meeting many months ago, and when I announced that I was going to be preaching the Pentateuch, in great support and with spiritual acumen, Pastor Darren laughed out loud. And I just found out today the reason he laughed is that he knew I was going to come to Leviticus 18. And so I'm gonna, we're going to take it to the house. We're going to read every verse of Leviticus 18 tonight. But we are continuing our mad dash through uh, Leviticus in a slightly longer sprint through the entire Pentateuch. And Leviticus, what we've seen is the overwhelming theme of holiness. The holiness of God, which is the result of the holiness of God's people. Which is to result, rather, in the holiness of God's people. And tonight, we're examining holiness and sexual conduct Now, those of you who love numbers and spreadsheets, this is our 33rd message out of 60 in the Pentateuch. Somebody asked me that this morning. So, if it's important to God, it is important to us. So, we're going to read Leviticus 18 and then see if we can uh, bring that to our, our mind and our thoughts here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. 
so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the stranger, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This is important to God. Therefore, it needs to be important to us. It's here for a reason. A term which is blazing in popular culture today is the term woke. It means to be culturally and morally enlightened as to all things racial, cultural, and sexual, that you have it all together. This past week, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick announced his candidacy to run for president in the next election of the Democratic Party. Deval Patrick described the Democratic Party. He said, quote, I love that we are the party of the woke, the enlightened, the ones who really know. Now, some say that preachers should stay out of politics. It is true that the purpose of the church is not to promote activism. It's not to promote social agendas. We are here to promote Christ, to promote the gospel through the revealed word of God. But the gospel includes a calling out of sin and a calling out of arrogance. Now, I don't have time this evening to go into the detailed fact that the Democratic Party openly represents a godless agenda of murdering babies, stealing your money, power for themselves, and glorifying sexual perversion of every kind. But I do have time to go into, in, in detail into the fact that statements like, we are the party of the woke, those statements are so monumentally arrogant as to be almost beyond comprehension. What is this saying? This is saying that certain people have figured out what is moral and what is not and now give themselves permission to look down on any who would disagree with them. We already see totalitarian laws being passed attempting to force everyone to agree with what the Bible says as being immoral and godless, but now we're supposed to agree with it. And now the law will begin to try to enforce that. But I'm here to say, and we would agree, that no human being has the right to claim high moral ground. We don't have that right. Christians have the right and the responsibility to point the, the, the world to the one who does have the high moral ground, and that is God, as revealed in his word. God makes clear that he's the one who defines what is moral and what is not. But to claim to have moral enlightenment is nothing short of practical atheism because to say, I am woke, says, I am God. It is a claim to deity. It is a claim that there is no God except me. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Let me give you God's definition of woke. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. To claim to be woke is by default to claim to have moral knowledge outside the revelation of God's Bible, outside of scripture. And the scriptures 
are the only reasonable source of morality. Why is that? Because the scripture is the only source of morality in existence that we don't have a conflict of interest with. Every other source is man-made, therefore we have a conflict of interest. This is not man-made. This is God-breathed. Therefore, it cannot be in conflict with something that we want. It's been said that the Bible is a book that man would not write if he could and could not write if he would because it condemns us. It shows us for who we really are. And so we go to the only source of morality, the only being in all the universe who is truly woke, so to speak, is God. As God continues now to give his law, the only source to his people Israel, he now comes to the issue of holiness and sexual conduct. And if we were to point out a theme in chapter 18, it is, you shall not, 24 times. It would be quite difficult to rework this passage into a sermon with warm fuzzies and good feelings. Um, It is, at its core, a formal warning. It's a formal warning. I want to give you a little bit of a foundation here. Why is this issue so prevalent in Scripture? Why do we hear about sexual immorality just seemingly everywhere? Why this emphasis? Well, I want to give you a short theological basis for the prominence of this issue. Just four foundations, very briefly, to kind of get our minds thinking. Four foundations of the importance of the topic of sexual immorality. First of all, moral law concerning human sexuality is a reflection of God's character. Moral law concerning human sexuality is a reflection of God's character. This is, this is very important to understand. The ancient Near Eastern pagan, they made up their own gods. There were tens of thousands of gods, and they had no difficulty creating gods for themselves, which in the invented lore and mythology of these gods included thievery, bribery, indecent exposure, homosexual acts, any kind of sin. In other words, people tended to design gods to resemble themselves. Whereas Yahweh, the true and living God, has designed people to be called to resemble Him in holiness and in purity. So moral law concerning human sexuality is a reflection of God's character. It's another foundation God is defending his sole right to define marriage. God is defending his sole right to define marriage. Basically, all of the sins we just listed in chapter 18 violate God's design of marriage in some way as one man with one woman for a lifetime of committed union together. As a matter of fact, the sins listed in chapter 18 represent very well the pagan worldview of denying boundaries or limitations of any kind. And in our culture today, as I read Leviticus 18, you were thinking, that sounds like something I saw on CNN yesterday. It reflects our culture now. But God alone has the right to define marriage. No one has the right to redefine something that God has already defined. There's a third foundation. Human sexuality represents a loyal relationship with God alone. Human sexuality represents a loyal relationship with God alone. Numbers of times, the Bible equates God's dealings with mankind in terms of what? Of marriage. That marriage is created very much to be a reflection of mankind's dealing with God and God's dealing with mankind. And anything which violates those boundaries brings chaos and confusion and conflict. And so very often in Scripture, even the 
unfaithfulness of God's people is said by God to be spiritual adultery. And so it's very much a picture that we must honor. One more foundational item. Blatant violations of God's created order will incur judgment. Blatant violations of God's created order will incur judgment. Doesn't matter what people say. Doesn't matter what the culture says. At the great white throne judgment, it will only matter what God says. And every mouth, according to Romans chapter 3, will be silent. There will be no more debate. Okay, well with that foundation, what our text tonight basically addresses is how do we live a godly life in an ungodly world? That's really what the text is about. And I want to give you three principles through this text. How do we live an ungodly life in an un, how do we live a godly life rather in an ungodly world? First, first principle, God's people are to be distinct from a corrupt world. God's people are to be distinct from a corrupt world. And at the outset, we see how serious God is about this subject. This chapter has been said and thought of by many scholars to be one of the greatest literary works of all time. It it really stands alone. Leviticus chapter 18, while definitely in the context of the rest of the book, it can be taken out as a unit and stand all by itself. And the reason is is that it, it follows very, very closely the format of an ancient Near Eastern, we've talked about this before, the suzerain vassal treaty. The big king who conquers the little king and they make a treaty. And, and the basic idea of the treaty is the big king says, you obey me and I'll bless your little nation. Don't obey me and I will crush you. And this follows this very formal structure. First, you have the identification of the great king, of the great sovereign at the beginning and at the end. Verse 2, I am Yahweh. Verse 4, I am Yahweh. Verse 5, I am Yahweh. And then at the very end, verse 30, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. And that's how a treaty would begin. A declaration of who the great king is. And in case we missed it, God repeats himself. And then you have what is called the historical prologue. The the historical situation of the covenant. And you have this in verse 3. You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt. Where you lived... And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. If you read verse 3, a a thousand years later, two thousand years later, you can say, oh, I know when that was happening. That was after they left Egypt, but before they got to Canaan. There's There's an historical context. And then you have a basic or general covenant stipulation. Just a, a broad command that covers everything. Verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. And then you have the blessing for obedience. The blessing for obedience comes in verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And then from verses 6 all the way through 23, you have, rather than general covenant stipulations, you have specific stipulations, the specific rules. And then finally, in verses 24 through 30, you have conclusions, conclusion with a couple more warnings thrown in right at the very end. So God is very serious about this. He's serious enough to give them an official document. Israel's being warned not to live like the people where they came from or like the people to where they're going, Egypt and Canaan. 
God gives this injunction in very formal terms. This isn't just a discipleship or Bible study lesson. This is not an informal conversation that God is having. This is not God loosening his tie and saying, let's just talk for a minute. This is a contract. This is a covenant. This is a treaty God is demanding of Israel based on his kind rescue of them from Egypt. In fact, look at verse 30. How How does the chapter end? I am the Lord your God. What is, what is that? That's the signature of God at the end of this contract. That he is the one making this demand. The basic emphasis here is that Israel's conduct was to be morally superior to their pagan neighbors. Which, by the way, is precisely what we're called to as new covenant believers. We're commanded in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's the emphasis. Your conduct is to be morally superior than than that of your neighbors. But God is clearly stating here that unbelievers do not establish the criteria for moral right and wrong. God has established it. Listen, no human being is woke. Humanity is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. That's about as unwoke as you can get. Now, this isn't just good advice from God. This is a question of covenant loyalty. He is very clear, you shall not, 24 times. But there's an even deeper historical connection to this text, which concerns a curse going all the way back to Genesis 9. Remember, the Egyptians, where they're coming from, the Canaanites, where they're going, both the Egyptians and the Canaanites are descendants of Ham, the son of Noah. In fact, there's a great deal of literary connection between Genesis 9 and Leviticus 18, terms like nakedness and uncovering and seeing or saw. They, They form a very strong connection together in Hebrew. You recall the story from Genesis 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Ham was the progenitor of Canaan, and Ham was guilty of a blatant lack of family respect. And so under the curse of God, now, these peoples didn't share the blessing of God. This is speaking of people groups, not individuals. Now, any individual wishing to be a believer in God could do so and could escape judgment. We have Rahab from Jericho. We even have a, a small group of Egyptians who left with Israel at the Exodus. Exodus twelve thirty eight calls them the mixed multitude. And so individuals could certainly come to faith, but as a nation, as a people, all the peoples under Ham, Egyptians, Canaanites, are cursed. The Hamites... Canaanites in particular were characterized by exactly the same moral abandonment which Ham had demonstrated. In fact, they went much further than Ham. While Ham merely uncovered the nakedness of his father, 
to shame and mock him. Now the term, and we read it dozens of times in Leviticus 18, the term uncovering the nakedness now became a euphemism for immoral sexual activity. Much, much worse. And so in these first five verses, God could not be more clear. You are to be different. But the warning is clear too. If you choose to live in rebellion against the creator of your very life, you do so to your own destruction, to your own death. So God's people are to be distinct from a corrupt world. There's a second principle for living a godly life in an ungodly world. God's people are not to violate his created order. God's people are not to violate his created order. And this brings us to the meat and the core of this chapter, the specific stipulations. We read the text already, but I'll just walk through it briefly. There's no mystery or major interpretive issues here. Verses 6 through 18 deal with sexual contact with family members. And I'll just go through the list. Sexual contact is prohibited with your mother in verse 7, with your stepmother in verse 8, with your sister in verse 9, with your granddaughter in verse 10, with your stepsister in verse 11, with your aunt in verses 12 through 14, keeping in mind that in large families, your aunt might be your age or even younger, with your daughter-in-law, verse 15, with your brother's wife, verse 16, with a woman and her daughter together, verse 17, with a wife's sister as a rival wife while the wife still lives, verse 18, which incidentally is precisely what Jacob did with Leah and Rachel. But of course, we know he was tricked into it, but it proves something. It demonstrates that what was once legal has now become illegal, that the law is now restricting and God is elevating the, the moral structure of his people. Now, by the way, if you read through that list, it has troubled some that left out of this list is father-daughter incest and brother-sister incest. But verse 6 simply says, any one of your close relatives. So that covers really all immediate blood relations. But did you notice who these laws are protecting? People say, well, the Bible is anti-woman. Everybody being protected here is a woman. Every single one of them. Women were not to be the indiscriminate objects of a man's passion and no one in a position of authority in a family was to exploit that position for their own gratification. Quite the contrary, Christianity, if you want to call it a religion, is the only religion that actually protects women. It's the only one. And then this section moves on to other sexual prohibitions. Verse 19, the prohibition against sexual contact with a woman during her, during her monthly cycle uh, there have been a lot of theories about this. Some have theorized that this is here because it cannot lead to the conception of a child, that this was a simple way to avoid having children for a while, that it's only a theory. It's not stated in the text. And, and frankly, in this culture, it's pretty unlikely anyone would want to avoid having children because children are your heritage. Children are your future. Children are your 401k, so to speak. There's no reason given here except to obey the Lord and to be mindful of the uncleanness principle concerning blood that we saw in chapters 11 through 17. But it does remind us of something. It does remind us that marriage is for people ready to have children. That sexual contact in the context of marriage, which is the only appropriate use of that gift, while it does serve the function, obviously, of spiritual and emotional oneness and unity, it's also for the purpose of having children. 
Now, I've been at Grace Bible Church, I was calculating today, almost seven years. And in fact, in two Sundays, it'll be seven years exactly from the day I first preached here. And so I think I've been here long enough to just be honest and say this. And you should tell your kids this as well. If you're married, you're ready to have children. If you're not ready to have children, you weren't ready to be married. That's simply scripture. That's simply what marriage is about. It is, includes having children. And then you get to verse 20. You have the prohibition against adultery. This version here in Leviticus 18 is pretty abbreviated. But make no mistake as to the seriousness of this offense. Two chapters later in chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. What do we do with him in the church? Well, church discipline, that's the worst thing that can happen. In Israel, you lost your life. Why? Because like the church, God wanted a purified Israel. He wanted a people who was pure. And now we come to an interesting verse, which at first glance seems a little out of place. In verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The Canaanites and eventually an apostate Israel offered children as live burning sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. But the verb here, offer them, it doesn't specify sacrifice. It's a verb that just simply means to make them pass through. And it very well could be speaking of devoting a child to a pagan temple to be used as a male or a female prostitute in the temple. And I think that's a pretty strong argument because given the fact that every other verse in this section has to do with sexual sin, I think that's the best way to go. And so the, the message continues. Marriage and marriage only is the sanctified place for God's creation of intimacy. And so you're not to push your children into immorality. And speaking of marriage, God and God alone gets to define marriage since it was his invention Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Some expositors in recent years have attempted to connect homosexual behavior as being prohibited only and strictly in the context of pagan temple prostitution. But the rest of Scripture is very clear about the broad context of this prohibition. Homosexuality is clearly prohibited as it is elsewhere in Scripture. Leviticus 20, verse 13, the death penalty for homosexual behavior of any kind is prescribed. Romans 1, 27 condemns homosexuality as behavior which will incur the penalty of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 could not be more clear. Those who practice homosexuality, quote, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be more clear about this. So what do we say to a culture who has now convinced the world very successfully that homosexuality and other sexual deviance is inborn, that it comes naturally. What do we say to them? Well, there's perhaps two facts, very important ones for us to consider. First of all, sinful mankind has brought this upon himself. Sinful man has brought this upon himself. Romans 1.22 and following is clear that because rebellious mankind has ignored the obvious revelation of God in the creation all around them, God has given them up to the lusts of their hearts. And by the way, one of the obvious revelations of God in creation is the physical creation of man and woman. 
both glorious and meant to complement one another, a man to a woman, not a man to a man or a woman to a woman. I was in a graduate school class many, many years ago, taught by an unbeliever who was pushing hard a homosexual agenda. And we had a a discussion, and there was a good old boy Texan believer, and he, he asked a question because the professor, a woman, she said, homosexuality is perfectly natural. And the good old boy stood up and says, ma'am, with all respect, have you ever done a jigsaw puzzle? Because that's natural. What you're talking about ain't natural. (laughs) Why would we say it's natural? Because we have been given up by God to that which is unnatural. If you follow after your own lusts. So sinful mankind has brought this upon himself. Why? Do men and women say homosexuality is perfectly natural because God gave them up and said, fine, you go your way. It's the second important fact. The hope of the gospel is released from the power of sin. The hope of the gospel is released from the power of sin. Romans 6 is almost unbelievable. Beginning in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Set free from sin. What a glorious hope. What a glorious truth. Homosexuality isn't somehow the one sin which the gospel can't handle. It's not, it's, not, it's not the one sin that we should try to accommodate and adjust the gospel to. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and can deliver you from any sin. Well, you would think that sexual perversion can't get worse. Verse 23, it gets worse. It prohibits the sexual use of animals, more commonly referred to as bestiality, Bestiality was practiced in the ancient Near East, particularly as part of the Canaanite fertility cult centered on Baal worship. And so Israel is entering the land where everything listed up to this point, including sexual contact with animals, was normal, was accepted. It was something that you could see on the streets of Canaan. Now, since our culture is determined to make our own morality, what would they say to this issue? Here's irony for you. Those great champions of self-made morality, the political and religious liberals, they're generally quite against bestiality, not because it's an affront to a holy God and a perversion of mankind made in the image of God, but out of concern for the animals. That is so upside down. Now, if you're anything like me by now, you're probably wishing we'd move on to more pleasant topics. But do you see how disgusting and sinful the world is around us? We're not entering Canaan. We live in it. We live in Canaan. And I hope this reiterates that God's created order alone is good. One man, one woman in a marriage. That's God's created order. How do you live a godly life in an ungodly world? God's people are to be distinct from a corrupt world. God's people are not to violate his created order. The third principle, God's people must not be the agent of contamination. God's people must not be the agent of contamination. 
verses 24 through 30 form the conclusion with some sobering final warnings. Verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. God commands Israel to stay away from these practices. And did you notice this? This is the condemnation of the Canaanites. The reason for God's punishment. They're guilty of the violations of all these things, all these examples of God's holiness. And those who would question the Bible would say, what right does God have to tell Israel to go and kill all the Canaanites? He has every right because he created mankind in his image to be pure and to be holy. And the Canaanites have violated his holiness, violated his purity, violated his law at every turn. And so he has every right. And look how serious this is to God in verse 25. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. The land itself is said to be defiled. God pictures even the land being offended. The dirt is offended and it's vomiting out the disgusting peoples in it with Israel as the agent of this punishment. The land has been defiled when instead, what should it be? It should be the land where God's people dwell, what the Old Testament sometimes calls holy ground. Verse 26, God says, don't be like those people. You shall keep my statues. And then look at this warning In verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And in verse 29, those who disobey will be cut off from among their people. Now, what does that mean? It seems that the phrase cut off from among your people is an extremely severe warning because it essentially says, if you get away with these abominations, if you're able to hide these sins, I will still know and I will punish you. Now, how do we know this? Well, the book of Leviticus seems to make a very clear distinction between two phrases, put to death and cut off. God is serious about these laws. Leviticus 20, verse 10, we see this phrase put to death coming up frequently. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So put to death, put to death, put to death. Who's doing that? That is the death penalty at the hands of governing officials, at the hands of human beings. But if you get away with it, if you're not found out, if your sin is behind closed doors, so to speak, the warning in Leviticus 18, numbers of times, is that God himself will come after you. You will be cut off, death at the hands of God, or the land will vomit you out. And that's exactly what eventually would happen Pretty good warning against sexual sin, even if it's private and hidden, isn't it? 
Now God gives one final command to keep these laws and then he puts his signature at the end of this covenant. Verse 30, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. That is, by the way, the singular, the only reason for obedience because he is God and he is our God. God's people must not be the agents of contamination. Well, it's happening again. Now, from within the organized church, the efforts to normalize sinful behavior is now growing monumentally and exponentially with great intensity. Books from professing Christians who are affirming a homosexual lifestyle, for example, are coming out every year now. Joseph Pearson's Christianity and Homosexuality Reconciled, New Thinking for a New Millennium. Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, a biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Justin Lee's Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians debate. And by the way, there is no gays versus Christian debate. The battle is that people who espouse homosexual behavior have declared war on God. They're not picking on Christians. They're going after God, and God will not stand for that. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that born-again believers struggle with certain sinful tendencies. We understand that. But those tendencies are not to be glorified. They're not to be explained away as normal. It's still sin that must be crucified with Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but after slogging around in the muck and mire... It's refreshing to me to remember what is right. We have a big list of what is wrong. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That marriage is meant, meant to be the living representation of perfect communion and fellowship with God, a, a unity so profound it really is quite indescribable. Marriage is called by the Apostle Peter the grace of life. Something designed to be a delight and a refuge even between two sinners. So given that Leviticus 18 is a part of the Mosaic Law, part of the Old Covenant, as New Covenant believers in Christ, those who've had their sins forgiven by faith in the Savior, what do we do with this? What do we do with these laws? Well, broadly speaking, the standards of God never change. And this is technically part of the Old Covenant law, which has been fulfilled and completed in Christ at the cross. God never changed the definition of marriage. He never did that. So all these principles remain unscathed. And sexual immorality is clearly prohibited in the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament as well. But what I'd like to do now is devote some time to thinking about how we can apply these ideas which are presented in Leviticus 18. And I'd like to take a few minutes and offer you four applications related to these warnings. Because we, we don't just dismiss it as being part of a law that we're not under anymore. Four applications related to these warnings. The first one, beware of becoming paganized. Beware of becoming paganized. And the insidious thing about becoming paganized is that you don't know when it's happening. Now, what do I mean by paganized? Well, listening to anything our culture has to say and treating it as authoritative. That the minute you lay aside 
alongside the Bible, any other authority on all matters for life and godliness, you have become paganized. You have now challenged the very word of God. And remember I said earlier that the pagan gods of the ancient Near East were thought of as immoral, as sexualized, as selfish, as violent. Listen, a human being becomes like that which he worships. And so we're to know God in all his fullness so that we become more and more like him. Our culture should have absolutely no voice in your walk with God. And yet we look so quickly to the world for examples or or worse to fellow believers who have already looked to the world as an example. We say, well, he's a Christian. He must be all right. That's not what Leviticus 18 is about. Leviticus 18 is the opposite. We're to be distinct. We're to be separate. We're to be different. We're not to somehow try to merge with the world in a friendly manner. We're never called to do that. And yet we do so as we're separate. We do so as much as possible in the spirit of love and and kindness. Listen, unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. They're going to do that. Our call is for us to act like believers and let the unbelievers watch. That's our call. And if the church is essentially not any different than the world, then we've lost our witness. We've lost anything that is different. The church can become paganized Anytime we try to do anything which is an attempt to merge the world's ideals with Christianity in order to please unbelievers. I'll give you an example, one we've talked about before. Even churches which attempt to be biblical in ecclesiology and avoid the trap of trying to attract the unbeliever by anything other than the gospel, sometimes even those churches fall into the trap of having some of their extra ministries, other ministries, operate with a completely different ethic, a completely different idea to be very, very seeker sensitive. Uh, For example, you have women's ministries which promote psychological self-help speakers, ideas, and books. You have men's ministries which promote worldly answers to life-altering sins. That yes, Jesus is the answer, but you need to go to AA if you're struggling with, with alcohol abuse. You have youth ministry, which is pressured to have enough fun to make unbelievers want to come. There's nothing wrong with fun, but the preached word should be why even a child wants to come. Because they've been told by their friends, you're dying in your soul and you're going to hell. You need to hear the gospel. Not because we rented a bouncy house. So here's a tough question for you. As you look in the spiritual mirror, how paganized are you? To a certain degree, every one of us are. How paganized are you? How do you answer that question? Well, the answer to that question lies very simply in determining where your influences come from. Who is influencing you? What is influencing you? Who are you listening to? And if you honestly list who is influencing you, you can determine how paganized you might have become. Let me give you another application I think is relevant from Leviticus 18. Obedience should flow from covenant loyalty. Obedience should flow from covenant loyalty to God. Now, when I say the the, the phrase covenant loyalty, that sounds very Old Testament, doesn't it? I mean, in the Pentateuch, as we've been walking through this, 33 messages now, we've talked about covenant loyalty a ton because it's at the heart and the core of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is how the faithful Israelite demonstrated covenant loyalty Allegiance to God. I don't think Christians think in those terms as much as we should, though. We, we say we've been saved by grace, 
And we use that as a means to say, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about how loyal I am to God. I think some of the apostles and some of the men with them would disagree. One of the men alongside the apostles, Barnabas, was sent by the church of Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria. Acts 11 verse 23 says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What did he mean, remain faithful? This doesn't take any great Bible study. Keep obeying Christ. Keep obeying Christ. It's the same thing as we say he was faithful to his wife. We all know what that means. It means that he was always intent on being with her and her alone, faithful to his marriage vows. And I think very often we think about sin solely in terms of what it does to us. And it does hurt us. Sin sets our spiritual growth back. It has natural consequences, which sometimes far outlast the actual sin, long after confession and forgiveness. But have we ever thought about what sin does to God? Yes, we believe in the doctrine of impassibility, that God cannot be made to do anything or affected by any outside source. You can't make God do anything. And yet we see examples in Scripture of God's grief over sin. God wept in the person of Jesus Christ at the grave of Lazarus. God wept in the person of Jesus Christ over sinful Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God is grieved at the corrupt and gossiping tongues of His people Ephesians 4. It's not that your sin is somehow causing God to go on an emotional roller coaster. God doesn't go on emotional roller coasters. You're justified. Your position before God is secure. It's consistent. And yet God is not without feeling or emotion. He can't be since we're made in his image. So let your greatest motivation to obedience be covenant faithfulness and loyalty that, Lord, I'm tempted to commit this sin. I'm tempted by this. Not, I don't want to do this because it's going to hurt me, but I'm not going to do this because I'm going to be loyal to you. That's a great motivator. I'll give you another application to Leviticus 18. Beware of bringing sexual immorality into the church. Beware of bringing sexual immorality into the church. Let me give you some ways sexual immorality has made its way into the church. First one, the normalizing of childhood romances. The normalizing of childhood romances. If you're in my generation, it was really simple. When you're in high school, if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you were in. If you didn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you were out. And so it was constantly a mad struggle, a mad dash to hook up that relationship somehow. But the fact is, even in the church now, that scene is cute or adorable. What would the Bible say? Four times, Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until it pleases. Don't flip that switch on because once it's on, it never goes off. Until you're ready to be married, you're a child. Pure and simple. And and let that be a, a joy to you. But we don't want to normalize childhood romances. Here's another way sexual immorality has made its way into the church. Underestimating the vulnerability of men to the sight of too much skin. 
We just don't even talk about that out loud. Underestimating the vulnerability of men to the sight of too much skin. Why is it that women are commanded to dress modestly in public? First Timothy 2.9, to dress with modesty. It's a Greek word that means with reverence. Listen to this, with respect for the feelings of others. Clothing, which removes all mystery about a woman's body, is immodest. And listen, at Grace Bible Church, I've lost count of the number of conversations I've had with men who are saying, I'm struggling with lust. And I tell them, you should come to church and worship God. And they say, at church is half, the, half of the problem. Because young women won't cover up. And I don't want to be there in that environment. I need to avoid that. We're called to be different. Can I say this? Who cares what the Kardashians are wearing? It doesn't matter. Here's another way sexual immorality has made its way into the church. The elevation of courtship or dating, whatever you want to call it, to the level of a perfectionistic audition. The elevation of courtship or dating to the level of a perfectionistic audition. This is a phenomenon in the last two decades. Our culture has created such an environment of self-centeredness that now marriage is seen as an opportunity to be served by another person for a lifetime instead of the opportunity to serve another for a lifetime. And now courtship or dating is a tryout where the other person must prove just how nearly perfect he is before marriage will even be considered. Can I say this? Marry somebody with issues because your spouse is marrying somebody with issues. We had a dear couple in our church here and they had to move away. Many of you know who I'm talking about. A woman who decided to marry a man who had been in a car accident and didn't have the mental capabilities anymore that he once had and is very much like a child. And he married, she married him to serve him for a lifetime. How does being overly picky bring sexual immorality into the church? Marriage is partly to be the one venue in which sexual desires can properly be expressed, but now the church is experiencing an epidemic of sexual frustration because these auditions take so long. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe what the Bible says? Yes. Do you believe what the Bible says? Yes. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Let's move it along, guys. One of the best ways to minimize sexual immorality in the church comes from parents and grandparents. Can I say this? Parents, teach your children and aim them for marriage. Teach children that marriage is the only appropriate place for sexual contact. Contact And listen, just edging toward sexual contact is a slippery slope which leads to terrible consequences. Terrible consequences. Teach young men to respect young ladies and not view them as sexual objects. Teach young ladies to view themselves as a prize to be won. And to win the prize, the young man must prove himself ready for marriage. I would love to see this. If I could ever witness this once in my life, I would feel my life is complete. But for a young man to express interest in a young woman and for the young woman to simply hand him a list and say, do these 97 things and call me when you're done. Like, get a job, have a car, move out from your parents' house. All the things that need to happen. Teach them what biblical marriage is. Can I say this? If the first book on marriage your youngsters read is during premarital counseling, you're a little bit late. 
That's like reading a book on piloting as you're settling into the cockpit of your own plane. Well, let me give you one more application, and this one's probably the most obvious. Guard your own marriages. Guard your own marriages. Satan despises marriage. You know why he despises marriage? Because it is the living portrait of Christ and the church. And he hates Christ, and so he hates any representations of Christ. Other than salvation, your marriage is your most precious possession on this earth. Don't wait for your spouse to experience divinely given full holiness and sanctification to love him where he is, to love her where she is. It's not going to happen. Probably the bad habits that he has now, he's going to have when he's 79. Focus on building your connection, your togetherness. Don't coast. Don't coast. Don't give in to the pagan notions that love of every marriage cools off. Says who? Who says that? Who made that rule? You know what Proverbs 5 says? Proverbs 5 tells an old man to rejoice in the wife of his youth and then begins to name body parts to be intoxicated by her. Whatever it takes, nurture your marriage. Give your marriage the water and the nutrients and the sunshine that it needs to flourish. I tell you one thing I've learned in my own marriage, and I've seen this in others as well, that... You wives, you are the barometer of your relationship. And I've learned that if my wife says we need to spend time together, you know what that means? I don't need to exegete that. We need to spend time together. She knows. And stop putting poison in the water. The poison of unforgiveness and bitterness and a consistently sharp tongue, a refusal to listen to the other, a refusal to serve the other. Can I say this? Live your marriage like tomorrow the other one is going to die suddenly. Or worse, like you're going to die suddenly and face God and have him say, welcome home to heaven, but you sure were rude to your wife three hours ago. Now you might ask, what does guarding my marriage in these areas have to do with sexual immorality? You know what an unguarded marriage promotes? I wish my husband was. That's idolatry. I wish my wife was more like, that's adultery. And I wish I was married to, that's covetousness. Those are serious things, all because a marriage is unguarded. Paul told the Corinthians to guard their marriages and in a very practical way to guard one another. First Corinthians 7, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So while the world continues on a collision course with hell, let us be distinct from a corrupt world, be careful not to violate God's created order, and be careful not to be the agent of contamination. And of course, you know, Jesus took all this to beyond the realm of the external to the internal. When he told us in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's an unreachable standard because all of humanity has now violated God's law in their minds. So what does that do? We're driven helplessly and hopelessly to the cross, because it is only in the cross that we find help and that we find hope 
and relief and forgiveness and joy and peace. Is Leviticus 18 a dusty 3,500-year-old document for us to look at as you look at the museum piece with some interest but no application? No. It's as relevant as today. Listen to the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's our motivation. What is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded that you walk to and fro among your churches. And you see the hearts and the actions of every person. And you know those little closets where we hide the sins. But they are not hidden from you. Out of covenant loyalty to you, might we present those sins to you and have them nailed to the cross as we strive, Lord, to be pure as you yourself are pure. Make us as a church, Lord, pure before you, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. We pray for the glory and the sake of Christ. Amen.